Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we continue our look at the life of King David. Today, lead pastor David Fossil takes us to an autopsy of an affair as he looks at David's relationship with Bathsheba. Join us as we find from this story ways to deal with the sin in our lives. Very cool. Very cool. The song you just heard, written by uh, singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen, was voted one of the top 250 songs of all time uh, around the world. Uh, We are talking about it today and introduced our theme this morning, not only because of the the word that it repeats time and time again, that we've already learned the significance of it, uh, a joyous praise, an excited praise to the Lord is what the word hallelujah means, but did you catch the two references within the song to biblical stories? One was a reference to to Samson and Delilah, and the other one was a reference to the story we're going to look at today, the reference to David and Bathsheba. Two men of God, in both instances, both of them got trapped in an affair, in an adulterous affair. Um, That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We are in the midst of a series on the life of David. We're arriving at 2 Samuel chapter 11, page 221 this morning. You know, it seems to me that... um, Every couple months, there's some story in the news about this. You know, it's, it's um, you know, the, 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 the husbands that are cheating on wives. And, you know, um, we've got uh, Tiger Woods and we've got former presidents and politicians and musicians and, you know, Sandra Bullock's husband. And every day, it seems like there's all these stories about people cheating on one another. And, you know, we kind of, you know, I can't believe they're doing that. And not for one moment realizing that uh, upwards of 50% of all men and about 35% of all women um, at some point in time have an affair. This is not something that is just happening to, to Hollywood people. This is happening to everyone. And the statistics outside of the church are pretty much the same as the statistics within the church, which is incredibly sad. Um, th- this is a serious issue that requires serious discussion with serious solutions. This is a story that is difficult to teach, and it's going to be difficult to hear, but it's incredibly significant that we talk about it. We're going to spend most of our time in the first five or six verses of the story. You can follow along in your Bibles. We also have it on the screen for you. Verse one, in the spring, at the time when kings were supposed to go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. She had purified herself from uncleanliness. We'll talk about that later. Then she went back home. The woman conceived And she sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now, I've tried to give you a little hint about how this mess started. I kind of bolded it and highlighted it for you on the screen. Um, At the time when kings, at the time when David was supposed to be off at war, you know, because of the, the time of the year, because of the weather conditions, because of what was going on, there was a time of the year when typically kings were not supposed to be in the palace. They were supposed to be out conquering territories. They were supposed to out protecting their borders. They were supposed to be out, you know, putting down rebellions, right? This was the time of the year. 
But David, for some reasons, decides not to go with his army, and he decides to play it safe. He decides to play it cool. He decides to sit back on his couch and hang back at the palace. Now, we are not told why he does this, but it is the very action that gets him in trouble. Now, if you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to write down, which is not immediately obvious, but is critically important, is this. Doing nothing is incredibly dangerous. Doing nothing is incredibly dangerous. Let me give you some examples. Do nothing to your teeth. Don't brush them, don't floss them, don't go to the dentist, and what's going to happen? In a couple months, by the end of the year, your teeth are going to be rotting and fall out of your face, right? Do nothing to your home. Don't maintain it, don't take care of it, don't repaint it, don't fix things that get broken, don't do anything to your home, and eventually, you won't want to live in it, and we won't want to come visit you at it, right? Do nothing to your garden. Don't do anything to your garden. And eventually, either the plants will start to die, and even though the plants are dying, the weeds are growing, it'll turn into an absolute jungle. Don't do anything to your marriage. Don't do anything to it. Don't talk to each other. Don't hang out with each other. Don't spend time with each other. Don't invest in each other. Don't do anything to your marriage. And what will happen over time is that that relationship will deteriorate and fall apart. Here's my point. If you do nothing, if you don't do anything in the area of your spiritual walk, the same kind of things happen. It is very dangerous and potentially deadly if you just don't do anything. One of the things is that many of us have grown up with parents, pastors, and churches, and they're all about telling us what we can't do. Don't do this, and don't do that, and don't go here, and don't go there. And we grew up in typically what is called legalistic households or churches. But what we have created is a group of evangelical Christians who think that if I just don't do this and I don't smoke that and I don't drink this, all I do is I just kind of don't do it. I could just show up to church. I don't do all the, I'm just going to sit here, don't do anything. No, not doing anything is equally as dangerous. There are some positive things you need to do in your Christian walk. Just showing up here on Sunday sitting, I'm telling you, if you go over time, you are going to put yourself in a situation that is incredibly dangerous. Now, one of the things I want to talk to you about for a couple minutes is, is the woman involved here, Bathsheba. Now, before I talk to you about her, it's really obvious that David is the aggressor in the story, isn't it? He's the one that's taking the initiative, and I'm going to get to the guys here in a minute. But um, uh, this is not a rape situation. This is an affair, and last time I checked, it takes two to tango, right? So there's something going on with her. Now, we do not know her personality or her character. We don't. We don't know if she's naive, we don't know that. We don't know if she's a temptress. We don't know if she's setting this whole thing up and she's trying to reel him in. She could, but we don't know that from the text. But here is what we do know. We do know that at the very least, she is incredibly careless. Incredibly careless, and she is not completely innocent. Let me say something very specifically to the women here this morning. It is one thing to make yourself look attractive. It is quite another thing to make yourself look seductive. It's one thing to make yourself look attractive. It's another thing to make yourself look seductive. Now, I think, women, you know the difference. I guarantee you that guys know the difference. See, I don't know the situation of Jerusalem at that time, but here you have a woman. She knows that her bath 
can be seen from different areas. Here I got my bath right here, and because of where it's at, you know, I know the condos over there. There's a couple condos that can see me. That house up on the hill, if they're looking at the right time with binoculars, they can see me. And of course, the palace over here. I mean, you've got King David's veranda and his patio right over there, and you know, he does his he's barbecue. But he can see me too. She knows. We've all been in one of those showers in, you know, in Mexico or someone's house where, where they have a little window. And what's the first thing we do? We want to, okay, can people see? You know, and sometimes they're like, oh, there's no way. And other times they're like, well, I'm closing this up real quick. She knows. She knows that she, he, she can be seen. And, and to, to take it to this level, this is a significant thing. We are not part of a tradition where we are Amish. We don't encourage our women to dress all in black with skirts all the way to the bottom and hats and no jewelry, no makeup. We are not like that. It's fine to make yourself look good. It's good to make yourself look good. But there is a line you cross where you go from looking attractive to looking seductive. Now, let me just say something as the old youth pastor in me or the old young adults college pastor. uh, That's what I used to be before I came to Bay Hills. And at some point in time during the school year, I would always get into this particular discussion with the girls. And they would say something like this. All guys care about are our bodies. Seems like that's all they care about, right? Two comments. One comment is I think that's been happening for 3,000 years. Comment number one. Comment number two and I'm just going to say this as tenderly as I can, but I'm going to say it. If by how you dress, you are advertising your body, what makes you so surprised that that's what guys are interested when they come around you? Can I make a suggestion? Look attractive. It's good to look attractive. One of the reasons I married Sandy is because I thought she looked hot. Look attractive. But could I encourage you? Could I encourage you? Advertise your mind. Advertise your personality. Advertise your soul and your commitment to Jesus Christ. Because at some point in time, you want to date a guy and marry a guy that likes you and is, in, and is interested in you, not just because you've got hot legs. So advertise the totality of who you are as a person, okay? Now, let me get to the guys. Because this is really a story about how a a guy really messed up. It's something we can all learn from. But what I want to show you guys, and you better pay close attention because so many of us find ourselves in the progression of temptation. It's not just the end when he's sleeping with her. It's the the multiple steps he could have pulled off the side of the road, taken an exit, and avoided the accident up ahead. But he did not do it. Let me break down for you the five, six steps of temptation. Let's put it on the screen. Here's how it goes. It starts with a visual stimulation right? He's on his patio. He looks down. He sees Bathsheba and she's hot. Now, you know this. Guys are more visually oriented than women. It doesn't mean that women aren't interested visually. It just means guys are more interested visually. And it starts with a a visual turn on on the part of, of, of King David. Now, I am sick and tired of hearing guys use their manhood as an excuse for looking. I am sick and tired of guys saying something to the effect of, well, I'm just, I'm just looking at the menu. It's not like I'm ordering anything, right? Like, like looking is no big deal. I'm just looking, well, just looking. You know, besides, Pastor, I can't help it. We're, I'm, a, I'm a man. I'm a guy. Guys, we can't help it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Okay, let me give you a scenario. Let's just pretend 
Um, my family, Sandy and I and the kids, we're down in Southern California. We're, we're, at, we're at a theme park, right? And there we are walking. We're drinking our slurping and everything. And up ahead, walking in our direction, is a 21-year-old blonde. She's wearing short shorts. She's wearing a tight T-shirt. She just came off the water ride, and she's soaked. You get the picture. She's walking in our direction. I'm holding Sandy's hand. How reasonable do you think it would be? Is this even a possibility that as this girl walks by us, I turn around, look her up, up and down, and say, God's creation is good. <laughs> what, what would happen to me if I did that? Yeah, I would show up like all injured, right? Now, I would like to think, I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't do that if I was by myself. But I am absolutely sure that as husbands, we would never do it with our wife there, right? Here's my point. Don't tell me you can't control your eyes. That proves that you can. You and I just choose not to. Now, you can't control the first look. We live in a society that there are images and nakedness flying around all over the place. You can't control the first look. You can control the second look. And what I'm telling you is that's how it starts for him. It starts with visual stimulation and then immediately proceeds to mental engagement. You can almost see it. You can, you can almost hear the thoughts in his mind. He goes from, ooh, she's hot, to, I wonder what she's like. I wonder who she is. I wonder if she's married. And it just starts taking over from there. It's a mental engagement with what is going on. And he could pull off the side, put on the brakes, but he doesn't do that. So he goes from visual stimulation to mental engagement to verbal communication. We're, we're just going to sit down and have a coffee. We're just getting, you know, our kids, they, they both on the same soccer team, you know, they both are volleyball, they both do the, 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 the you know, little league together. We're just, we're just catching up on life, seeing what her job, my job, we're just talking, you know, really. And can I just say, it could be completely innocent. It could be, we're just talking, right? But that's how it starts. Can I just also say, especially to guys, a word to, to, into how you compliment a girl, a woman. Be very careful. Because there's a difference between me saying to a woman something like this. That blouse looks really nice on you today. You look really nice today. Now, just listen to my, to my tone, not just my words. That, you know, and normally you're told compliment the clothing, not the person. That dress looks really nice on you. And it's a genuine compliment. Versus, sugar, baby, you are looking hot in that. <laughs> now, those are ultimate extremes right? But he, when you start saying to someone, you're looking hot, girl. I'm just telling you, I'm telling you, you are crossing a line you don't want to cross. And I, I think some guys go to extreme. I'm not going to talk to a girl. I'm not going to, you know, hug a girl. I'm not, you know what? If you have to, what you have to do, that's what you have to do. I'm saying if you compliment her, you better make sure what extreme you're on, okay? So it goes from visual stimulation to mental engagement to verbal conversation, and then the relationship and relational aspects starts up. We're just hanging out. Nothing's happening. We're just hanging out. By the way, you do know that 90, I think it's 90 to 95% of all affairs that occur happen between one of two groups, with one of two groups of people, either people you work with or family friends. People are not having affairs with, with people they meet in the towel aisle at Walmart. That is not happening. It's with people you work with 
or family friends. Now, should you, that mean not, I can't have any friends of the opposite sex? No, I'm not saying that. Don't put words in, I'm saying you better be careful. You better be careful. And then so it goes to visual, mental, verbal, relational, and then it gets emotional. Pastor, you know, he listens to me. My husband doesn't listen to me. You know, he's into the NFL and the sports thing. He doesn't even listen to me. She understands me. She understands me. She likes to do the kind of things I like to do, Pastor. I mean, that's what happened. My wife would hang out with me more. You know, and, and have you heard that term, emotional affair? That's where you've basically done everything except take off your clothes. You're so connected to the other person. That's, that's step five. That's step five. And then step six is a piece of cake, physical, right? It starts out like an innocent back rub and a long hug and an and a, you know, innocent kiss on the side of the cheek. Before you know it, you're going at it. Now, here's what I'm saying is that some of us are thinking that just because we are not at step six, we're okay. And I'm here to tell you that innocent flirtation going on between you and that certain person Whatever stage you're at, if you aren't careful before you know it, you're going to be at the end of stage six. Just be wise. This is a practical breakdown of temptation. James, in his book, chapter one, gives us a theological breakdown, and he's a little bit more blunt. He says it starts with desire. Oh, by the way, it's not a bad desire. Not bad desire, okay? Then it goes to deception. What's the deception? Here's the deception. Our desires are good. The deception is I'm allowed to fulfill my desires even if it's outside of God's will. That's the deception. That's the lie. So it goes from desire, which is neutral, to deception, which is problematic, to disobedience, I do the act, and then it follows death. You go, death? I mean, that's a little extreme. I mean, I know people that have had an affair and they're not dying. It's not talking necessarily literally here. I thought about this place this past summer when my son uh, went on a missions trip to the Philippines. Let me show you the picture. Um, that's Mount Pinatubo. It's pretty, isn't it? Seems peaceful, doesn't it? It seems like the kind of place you'd go on a light and long hike or somewhere you'd hike. Pretty. Except that's not how it looked in June of 1991. Let's put it on the screen. Mount Pinatubo produced the second largest volcanic eruption in the 20th century. And many, many people lost their lives. When people were trying to study why so many people lost their lives, um, one scientist that studies uh, volcanic activity said the following, quote, when a volcano is silent for many years, people forget that it's a volcano and start to treat it like a mountain. Some of us are doing the exact same thing with our sin nature. We are making the mistake right now and assuming that just because I've been a Christian for so long, heck, I, I invited Jesus into my life when I was in VBS years ago. I show up to church every so often. I tithe. You know, I'm in Bible study. I serve here and there. I show up, you know. My parents are Christian. We assume that because of all that, that the volcano's dead. And I'm telling you, it's not dead. As Christians, sin should never reign in us. But you need to know that it will always remain in us. And you have to know that. You have to understand that. You have to protect yourself against that. Don't for one minute think, oh, this is never going to happen to me. Because the minute you start thinking that way, Paul says in the book of Corinthians, you just jump to the front of the line as the person who has the greatest probability of falling to that. Don't ever think that. Protect yourself and guard yourself. Because you don't want this happening in your life. 
This story, 2 Samuel chapter 11, is really a story about sex. So let's, let's talk about sex here for a moment. Um, one of the things that I've noticed, because I've grown up with, in a Christian home and gone to Christian church, is that 99.9% of everything that I used to hear in church and from the pastor um, was always, don't do this with sex. And, you know, teenagers, don't touch that, you know, and don't go here. It was all, don't, 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 don't. It was all the negative stuff, right? About not wanting and protect, you know, and we have, I think our parents and, and churches have good motives for that. We have to balance it out just a little bit. So let me balance it for you just a little bit. Let me say this. Sex is good, it is promoted, and it is encouraged in the Bible. You should want sex, you should desire sex, and you should enjoy sex. Always and only within the bounds of a monogamous marriage. That's what the Bible says. And yet what I think we are communicating to the outside world is that the only reason Christians have sex is to create little Christians for babies. No, we are like the rest of the world. We have sex because it feels good. And we need to balance the don't do this and don't touch that, oh my goodness, with sex is good. It is a gift given to married couples by God. It's a good thing. I mean, Jerry Springer's talking about it. Let's give the other opinion, the other side of it, right? Let's talk about how good it is. I heard about this church in North Carolina that had like a three, four part series on sex. And at the end of the series of the pastor, <laughs> he came up with this idea and he challenged, you know, like sometimes I challenge you to make some sort of commitment. He challenged all the married couples in the church, you know, based upon God's gift of sex to us. He challenged them to have sex with their spouse every day for a month. He had signups. <laughs> How does this work? I don't, you know, uh, you know, I want to encourage you to go to the uh, Women of Faith, check that out, and uh, you know, they've got the golf tournament, we got spots for that. So sign up for the sex during the month uh, thing. How does this work? They were known as the sex church in town. I don't think that's a good thing, you know? Now, he may have gone a little further than I would feel comfortable with, but you know, I think we need to talk about it a little bit more on Sunday morning in church. I really do. I also think we need to talk about it on Monday morning around the kitchen table with our kids. Parents, if you are not talking to your kids and giving them the positive benefit of sex, not just the don't do this and don't maybe when you go out with him or her, make sure. If you aren't giving them the positive, you are missing out on a great opportunity. I'm not saying you have to be obscene, but you're missing out. They need to hear the positive. Let me give you a quick example. About a while back, Sandy is in the kitchen. She's cooking. I go in to see what's for dinner. I'm looking over, and before you know it, we're hugging. And sure enough, after a couple moments, she slips her hand down, and she starts squeezing me. It happens all the time. It's very, um, you know. So as, as soon as that's happening, Jessica walks in walks by, my middle child, and she goes, oh, you're gross, and then she yells out, get a room! <laughs> it gets better. Sandy goes, I think we will, and Jessica goes, oh, no! Right? Now, here's all I'm saying. Here's all I'm saying. You don't have to sit down and go through a medical journal with your kids. You know what? All you have to do, there's some things you should tell your kids, don't do this, but you know what? Every once in a while, they need to know 
that this is an important part of a marriage relationship and mom and dad enjoy it and it's a good thing. You don't need or want to say more because they really do have the, uh, we don't want to talk about this with mom and dad. But you need to balance it out. It is good. It's a gift given to us by God. Let me say two more things. Um, Sexual sin is much more serious than many, many other sins mentioned in the Bible. One of the biggest lies that people believe in church is that all sin is sin and now it's all the same. No, it is not. It's not even close. You don't believe me? Read 1 Corinthians 6. You read it. It's not the same. They are major consequences that you cannot avoid. By the way, did you catch the one line in the song? Did you you catch what Delilah did to Samson? Did you catch what Bathsheba did to David? It says this. This is the song. From her lips, from Delilah and, and, and Bathsheba's lips, from her lips, she drew, she took away, she eliminated. From her lips, she drew the hallelujah. In other words, you start doing some sexual sin. And I'm not just talking about uh, affairs. Throw porn in there. Oral sex. Throw it in. You know, I don't have to give you a list. You watch what happens to your hallelujah. You know it and I know it. You can still show up here on Sunday morning. You can even read your Bible, but down deep you know a wall just went up between you and God. And I just, I'm, I'm telling you because I care about you what the Bible says about this. It is much more serious. Last thing you need to know is just because you avoid the physical consequences of sexual sin does not mean you will avoid the spiritual and practical consequences. Here's what I mean. What if she had never got pregnant? Would we even have this story in here? Probably not, because it's not as juicy, right? And so many people think, well, as long as I use protection, as long as I make sure she doesn't get pregnant, and as long as we make sure that my parents, the pastor, and who are so-and-so don't know about this, as long as, then we're cool. Well, Certainly, if if you can make sure the pregnancy doesn't happen and you can make sure you keep it hidden, certainly, it's probably a little bit better off, but don't for one moment think that just because you avoided the physical consequences, you will not experience the spiritual and practical consequences. Did you guys catch what Tiger Woods said last week? Number one golfer in the world for quite a while. I mean, the greatest golfer that has ever walked the planet. And he had the worst tournament of his life. I mean, he lost by like 30-some strokes. I mean, it's it's unheard of. I think he was second to the last. It it doesn't even make sense. And the reporters were asking him, you know, Tiger, what happened? Was it your putting? And was it the driver? Was it your stance with the ball? What happened? And his response was simply, it's been a rough year. And the reporter pushed him on that. You know, well, how so? I mean, what about about your golf swing that was... No, no, you you don't understand. It's... It's been a rough year. A clear allusion to his affairs and his crumbling marriage. Don't play games with yourself and assume that there aren't going to be consequences. You may not see them or sense them right now, but there's always consequences. So I want to give you a balanced perspective. I want to say it's a major issue, but I also want to balance it out with it's good. And it's meant to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. The rest of the story is how not to deal with sin. Let me break it down for you and I'll let you get going. Chapter 11, verse six, here's what we read. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him, 
how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. Picture this. David is chit-chatting with Uriah, the husband of the lady he just got pregnant. So, how do you think the Raiders are going to do this year? What's with the weather? Where did our summer go, you know? What'd you do this summer for vacation? He's chit-chatting with this guy. Then David, verse 8, said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Doesn't that sound strange? Wash my feet. What the heck is going on here? So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. Oh, I see what's happening here. Here's what I need you to do, Uriah. I know it's been pretty tough out on the, on, on the, war, in the battlefield and everything. I know you're dirty, haven't had a shower. Go home, have a shower. I'm going to send some food, a couple bottles of Merlot, and you, you, you and Bathsheba can get it on. That's what he's saying to him. That's exactly what he's saying to him. But, verse 9, Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to the house. See, here's what David's trying to do. If I can just get Uriah to sleep with his wife, then when she starts to show, we can just assume it was Uriah. I mean, the baby's going to show up four to six weeks early, but, but that's not like that. You know, back in those days, they don't have, you know, all the mammograms, santagrams, and all that and find out. No, they don't know. They don't have, we're just going to say, oh, you know, it's, it came early. Get out of it. But he doesn't, he doesn't go home. Do you, do you guys see the irony throughout the whole story? How ironic it is that this soldier, Uriah, is more committed to military standards than David is committed to God's standards? How ironic it is that Bathsheba is willing to be ceremonially clean, verse 4, but willing to be uh, morally unclean. How, how it's so ironic that David can write in the book of Psalms, search me, O God, know my anxious thoughts, see if there's anything unclean in me. And then you get to Samuel chapter 11, and he says, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to hide it. Search me. I don't want you to search me. Reveal in me. I don't want you to reveal anything in me. And there's irony throughout this story. What's he trying to do? He's trying to hide his sin. I could, if I could just hide my sin, if I could just keep it from everybody, I'm, I'll be fine. So not only does he hide his sin, then he moves on to trying to rationalize his sin. Second Samuel 11, verse 14 and 15. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. So Uriah is carrying this note. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front of the line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Later on, that's exactly what happens And in verse 25, after David hears that Uriah is dead, now think about it, no one's going to find out. Then we read in verse 25, David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. People people die. Uriah was going to die eventually. Don't feel bad about it, Joab. This thing, these things happen. You've got to be kidding me. He's just, you know, it, it, it's what happens in war. And he rationalizes it. So he goes from hiding it to rationalizing it and finally to maximizing it. The story ends in verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Now I want you to make sure you understand. Just because um, Bathsheba made a mistake don't for one minute think that she didn't love her spouse. I've had multiple conversations with couples over the last 17 years where I know it's hard for the other person to understand that, well, if you had loved me, you wouldn't have done that. There is a grain of truth there, 
but, but you also have to know that the person who made the mistake and who sinned can still love and make that horrible mistake. And let me also say, if we don't have the kind of God that can heal marriages and bring forgiveness and restore trust, we're wasting our time. And I don't think we are. He's big enough and he's great enough and his grace it can, can cover a multitude of sins and can restore families and marriages. He can. And I can help you or others can help you and have the courage to try and figure it out. But notice verse 27, after the time of mourning was over, David had, brought her, uh, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. In other words, the boy should probably grow up with a dad. Let's just, let's just go ahead and get married. Let's make the most of it. So now he maximizes his sin. I heard of this carpet cleaning company whose sales grew by like two, three hundred percent because they would have these, these salesmen that would go door to door and, and they would try and sell the service of a major uh, carpet cleaning. And what they did is they gave these salespeople a very, very powerful black light. And what they would do is they would go into the homes. First thing they would do is turn off the lights, cover the, put the shades across, put the blinds down, and then they would turn this powerful black light that was intended and was created to um, cause urine crystals to glow brightly. And so what they would do is they would start to go around with the black light and all of a sudden the homeowners would realize that the kitty isn't going in the litter box and the dog isn't going outside. Oh no, no, there was urine all over the carpet and on the furniture and on the walls and on the drapes, even on the lampshades. And as they were going around, these homeowners would basically say, please, whatever it costs, we'll pay it, please clean it. Some of us are thinking that just because we're not allowing the Holy Spirit to shine a light on our life that the filth isn't there, but it's there. And you need to confess it. And you need to repent of it. Knowing that when you do that, God will clean you as white as snow, he says. He hides it, he rationalizes it, he maximizes it. The, the way the story ends is with the last phrase in chapter 11, first phrase in chapter 12. And my challenge to you, it says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Verse one, chapter 12, the Lord, had, the Lord sent Nathan to David. My last challenge is this, find a Nathan, be a Nathan. Find a Nathan in your life, be a Nathan for someone else. What do I mean by that? Well, let me ask you a question. You know, in all fairness, did you catch the guy in verse three, the servant, when David asks about this woman, the servant kind of goes, well, isn't she kind of married? Did you catch that guy trying to help the king? But he's too low on the organizational chart. I'm not gonna listen to him. But with Nathan, it's different because Nathan is the prophet of God. He's a little bit more on an equal standing with David. And he comes to David and he says, we gotta talk. We gotta talk. Question, do you have a person in your life that has the integrity, the courage, because it's not easy, and the love for you to speak the truth into your life even when it stings? Do you? Some of you are thinking right now and you're thinking, I, I think I do. Well, let me help you figure it out. If in the last 18 months that person has not come to you and spoken the truth to you, you don't have that person. Because I know in everyone's life, at least once a year, once every year and a half, we do something either that's incredibly sinful or just really stupid and immature. Would you agree? At least once. And that's when that person says, you know, that's not a good thing. 
you need to have someone in your life that speaks truth to you like right now I also want you to be a Nathan. Some of you are here this morning, you are not in an affair. You're not even close to an affair. But you have a friend that is going down the pathway and you aren't saying anything. You're not saying anything. Now, this is not a permission slip for all of you to leave here today and get on your cell phones and your email and start confronting everybody, all the mistakes they're making. Oh, no, no. Okay, let me be real clear what is required to be a Nathan. One, you have to have the right relationship with them. You have to have a relationship with them. You have to have a rapport with them. You may know of something going on in someone's life. You don't have a relationship with them to really sit down and talk to them. You, you also have to figure out the right, your motive. Right motive. Why are you wanting to confront them? Just to show that they're wrong? Well, that's, that's a wrong reason. It should be to redeem them. It should be to rescue them and help them. You better find the right words. If you know chapter 12, you know he's incredibly incredibly wise. He doesn't just kick down the door and go, you've been sleeping with Bathsheba, you bum. He doesn't do that. He tells him a story and he's not manipulating him. He's setting the stage to try and help him. So better right relationship and right motive and right words, right? You, you better make sure you have the right timing. There are, you can have the right everything. If you do not have the right time, it'll blow up in your face. Little example, Sandy knows there's one time you never ever bring up something with her husband, David. Sunday morning. I, you know, bring it up any other time other than Sunday morning and Monday night football, I'm willing to listen to you. There's just bad times, would you agree? And the last thing, could I just maybe write location? You get the feel when you read chapter 12, it's not in front of the whole cabinet. Everybody is, no, it's just over a cup of Starbucks. You know what? Facebook is not a place to start arguing with your friends. We brought this up two months ago and still some of us haven't learned our lesson. How reasonable would it be for me to argue with my wife on Facebook for all of you to enjoy? The rest of the world is watching and listening to us. Get a clue. So you need to find a Nathan, you need to be a Nathan. Let me wrap up by saying this. Whatever you have to do, even if it's extreme measures, do it. Do it. See, that's what Jesus meant when he said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cut it out. Why? Because it's better to go into heaven with only one eye than go into hell with two eyes. You know what? For some of you, you may need to end that friendship. Nothing's happened yet. I know. You may need to end it anyway. For some of you, you may need to cancel your, um, your cable movie package. Why? Well, because there's things on HBO and Skinamax that you shouldn't be watching. For some of you, you should have no more internet because you can't handle it. You can't. How about we put software on it? You get through the software. If you have to take extreme measures, it's that important. Second thing, and I want to make sure and end like this. If you've messed up, confess, repent, and receive the grace of God. Confess, repent, and receive the grace of God. Story about a pastor in the middle of a jungle, and he's got a lady in his congregation. The lady says, you know, every time I sleep at night, Jesus comes in the middle of the night and speaks to me in dreams. Pastor's like, yeah, sure, lady. No, really, Jesus speaks to me in dreams. Well, here's what I want you to do. Next time he shows up and talks to you in a dream, I want you to ask him, what sins your pastor has committed and confessed? Ask him. Okay, I will. So she goes away, comes back a week later. So, 
Did Jesus show up in your dreams? Yes, he did. Did you ask him what sins I had, you know, committed and confessed? Yeah, he did. What did he say? Lady says, Jesus said he can't remember. If you've messed up, confess your sin, repent of it, and receive the grace of God, and he will bury it and think about it no more. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do not want to be like the Pharisees here today, pointing fingers. We want to acknowledge and realize how you tell us in your word that whether we've committed it in the flesh or whether we've committed it in our spirit, it is equally sinful, it is equally destructive. While the consequences may be the same, in your eyes it's not a good thing. Father, I I just want to thank you that you leave these kind of chapters in the Bible. If I was God, I would have been tempted to take it out and make sure that everybody thought that the heroes in the Bible were perfect. But you and your wisdom realize that leaving these chapters and stories in, it actually gives us hope. Hope that someone could make such a horrible mistake and that you could still nevertheless use them powerfully in your kingdom. And some of us are holding on to that this morning. Because for many, maybe, the last 15 to 30 minutes have been incredibly uncomfortable. Because we know what we're doing with our boyfriend and girlfriend is not right. We know what we're doing with that one person at work is wrong. And, and this morning, I, I know we heard from you. Father, give us the courage to do whatever we need to do to obey you in this area. Father, also give us the openness to celebrate that you have, given, uh, you have given sex to marriage and not be afraid to talk about it. And um, I thank you for what you've taught us this morning. Protect us in this area, we pray. In Jesus' name. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.